Bit Midler, Wind Beneath My Wings, from uh, the film Beaches, the bit where everybody cries at the end. Yeah, your your music choices are getting better week by week. <laughs> you mean it's not a James Bond one? No, I, look, I don't <laughs> mind James Bond, I just don't worship at his altar, yes, unless yes. it's Timothy Dalton, because right. he's the best. Right. So the bit of that film, uh, for those who remember Beaches, of course, is at the end when uh, her best friend's dying from cancer. They go down to the beach house for the last time, and Bet's looking after the, the her best friend's little girl, and they're on the um, the beach together playing, and um, her best friend's watching from the beach house, obviously very ill, and uh, trying to plan who should look after the little girl after she dies, and, mm. and then it all leads to asking Bet to look after her, and it's very sad, very Great. sad. Right. Well, I went to see The Eagle last night. You finally plucked up the courage yes. to see it. I must say, nearly full house at Yannick Playhouse. Good. It was, uh, it was very popular. And uh, uh, not for the faint-hearted, that one, is it? Well, no, I mean, it's a fifth, it's, it's 12, isn't it? Yeah, it's, we it's, were sort of pondering on the way home. Would that have been a certificate 18 20 years ago? <sighs> well, what did you think of it before I get I into it? I mean, it was a great film. Uh, good story. Good. Um, little fanciful in places, but uh, it was uh, it was good fun. Um, possibly a little too gratuitous on the uh, the blood and gore. <laughs> For you, perhaps, yeah. Yes. I mean, I think when we were discussing this off-air, I think I, I said something along the lines of what you consider to be gory and gratuitous, I consider rather tame. But whether that's because I'm you know, warped by my love of horror movies <laughs> or not is another question. Right. We'll come on to that when we come to Halloween. Indeed, indeed. Well, at the Annick Playhouse in the week ahead, um, tonight's Submarine is going to be on at 7.30. Yeah, it's the debut film by uh, Richard Ayoade, who is best known for um, his performance in the It Crowd on Channel 4, and it's a really sort of unusual, um, wry coming-of-age film with uh, Paddy Considine in, who's a very good actor. Right, so we've got Archipelago on Tuesday nights. Which <laughs> is, an, is an odd little uh, drama. It's about a sort of family who go off to um, the Silly Isles and, you know, gradually, you know, there's an absent father involved and gradually the family starts to disintegrate. It sort of treads very close to that the Noah Baumbach school of filmmaking, which is, here's a bunch of rich, successful people, let's watch them moan for two hours and you have to sympathise, to which the response is, no, don't care. But it just about gets away with it because of the way, it, the kind of, it's shot in a much more glacial way and the characters are slightly more interesting than Baumbach's creations. Okay. Thursday afternoon, we've got uh, Rio at two o'clock. Which is okay. I mean, I think we're both a bit surprised that it's still around, to be honest, because yeah. it is a, a sort of disposable 3D film. But like I say, if you see it in 2D, which is better, it'll be fine. Yep. And then Thursday evening, Limitless at 7.30. Which I think, as we covered in the past few weeks, again, is okay. It's not remarkable. It, it's, you know, it's, it's typical trashy 12A multiplex fare, but if you've got nothing else to do, I'm not going to come around and hate you for it. Right. Not that I do that anyway, of no, course. No, no, no. He Ticket stops me. Tickets are £6, uh, reduced to £5.50 for concessions. The box office number is Annick510785. And meanwhile, it's Winnie the Pooh up at the Maltings in Berwick. Yeah. Now, um, when I reviewed, we reviewed this on the week that you were away, because I yes. was doing it with Paul, and it's a very odd thing to have in cinemas, because it's only about an hour long, and that includes a couple of short films, so it yes. is like an extended TV episode, but... I think that it plays to its target audience as sort of under tens, and it's it's sort of charming. So, right, good. But if, particularly with uh, did you what day did you say it was playing? Uh, it's all over the weekend, I think today oh. and tomorrow 
and Monday. Well, because you were saying it's going to be rainy on the Monday, so yes. as a way of passing a rainy afternoon, you can't yes. ask for better, to be honest. Yes, uh, yes, actually, 2 o'clock and 5.30 tomorrow, 1 o'clock on Monday. Yes, yeah. well, there's your answer. Yes, indeed. Meanwhile, you were at the Tyneside last weekend. Did you manage all 75 hours? I'm well, I couldn't, because they were doing it over three screens, so unless I sort of watched half an hour of each one and then dashed between, I wouldn't have managed right. it. I, I managed to see two in the end, because I ducked out of Harold and Maud at three in the morning, just because I was feeling a bit, no, didn't feel I could do the film justice, critically speaking. Um, I saw Peeping Tom, as I said I would, and it's extraordinary. I said last week it was better than Psycho, and I stand by that. It's that was quite your wording on Facebook, was it? Well, <laughs> I can't repeat my wording on Facebook because I, w I was completely knocked out by him, and I sort of went in having seen sort of bits of it years and years ago, thinking, okay, well, no, I love Michael Powell, I love Powell and Pressburger, it's going to be one of those sort of technical efforts. And the first five minutes are absolutely terrifying. And then it gets scarier from there. I mean, the experience was sort of enhanced by me because they had the bar open all night. And in the front row of uh, the Tyneside Classic screen on the ground floor, there were two slightly, slightly inebriated people who were sort of picking up on all the, um, the well, the double entendres that, that sort of come up in the film because there's a sequence where where um, the heroine, played by Anna Massey, goes um, into Carl Boehm's um, massive darkroom at the back of his apartment, and off-screen she's held to remark, is this yours? But it's enormous. And the whole room burst out laughing because everyone else has had a bit too much to drink. <laughs> right. A good night. Yeah. And yes. uh, it sort of enhanced the film, as normally people talking yeah. over films is very annoying. And then uh, on Sunday night, I went with uh, a friend from church to see Wings of Desire, the Vin Vendors film. And it was really, really touching. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful film about sort of... A, as I almost said aliens, of angels um, wanting to be human. Fantastic performance by Bruno Ganz, who is most famous for Downfall. It is slightly sprawling, you know, Vin Vendors has a very sort of meandering poetic structure to his films, but if you get in the mood with it, it'll have a really deep impact on you. Hmm. Certainly did for me. Good, good. Should we do the top ten? I think we'd better, because yes. it's nearly quarter past already. Yes. Number ten is Win Win. Which I like. I mean, it's an independently spirited film with Tom McCarthy and a good performance by Paul Giamatti, who's sort of been up and down recently. I'm, I'm actually pleased it's in the top ten, because unlike some of the films in the top ten, it's got proper characters and it's quite well judged. Good. Blitz is at number nine. Which is a perfectly decent genre action movie. I mean, it's made memorable by the performance of Jason Statham, whom I think chooses his roles um, more carefully than a lot of people think. Um, Paul Young, who used to host this show, actually went to see this on a blind date this week. Did he? And in the same way of your experience with the Eagle, he loved it and she didn't. Oh dear, so that didn't do the blind date a lot of good. <laughs> <laughs> Number eight, Water for Elephants. Again, it's a perfectly decent, old-fashioned melodrama which sort of harks back to the great sort of Technicolor works of the 1950s. I think it also demonstrates that Robert Pattinson has better acting chops than others have previously thought, and of course we've got the fourth part of the Twilight Saga coming out, uh, it's either this summer or in the autumn. Okay. Can't remember it. We've already talked about the number seven film, Rio. Uh, number six is Hannah. Uh, Joe Wright's best film. Um, Saoirse Ronan is the best thing in it. She's absolutely terrific. If you want to see a couple of her other performances, uh, The Way Back, which she did with Peter Weir, the great Australian director, has just come out on DVD. Apparently, the news is that her next film is going to be another is going to be a collaboration with Danny DeVito. Oh, it'll be the first. That'd be interesting. Well, it'll be the first film that he's directed in eight years. So, I mean, because bear yeah. in mind he's the guy who directed Matilda, which is one of the best yes. Roald Dahl adaptations. Yes. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that. I think the film, like I say, it's uneven, like a lot of George Wright's work, but it is enjoyable and it's worth seeing alone for the central performance because Saoirse Ronan is going to be one of the best in the world in the next ten years. Great. Alright, Attack the Block is at number five. Which I like. I mean, Joe Cornish is an interesting director. 
too. It's uh, it's an interesting mix of sort of old school sci-fi and sort of modern social stuff. There's been a lot written about the fact that the protagonists are not sort of middle class suburbanites, as happens in a lot of Spielberg stuff. You know, whether it's Close Encounters or ET. I think. My reservation would be that it's not quite scary or funny enough to be properly classed as a horror comedy, but on the other hand, it possibly wasn't designed like that, so I think go in with an open mind and appreciate it for what it is. Okay. Number four is Insidious. <laughs> Which is admirable, but not scary. I mean, like I said last week, you have to admire the fact that they managed to achieve something so professional for so little money, which is another point we'll pick up on with Halloween. But it isn't scary, and it is too close to things like The Omen and Poltergeist and Village of the Dam to sort of stand on its own. Right. On its way out. Thor, it's been number one forever, hasn't it? <laughs> well, for the last few weeks. I'm not sure on its way out is... Well, yeah, it's it's really good. It's knowingly ridiculous. I mean, I think the comparisons with Flash Gordon are sort of merited, but also quite dangerous. You can check out my thoughts on Flash Gordon on one of the early podcasts. I think that Kenneth Branagh is better at doing comedy than he's given credit for, and I think the longer this stays around in the top ten, the more chance there is of Frankenstein being properly rehabilitated, which would be a very good thing. Good. Number two, Fast Five. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. And number one, by a country mile, I guess it, you you were expecting this, Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean. I don't think anyone wouldn't have expected this. Now, I want to say this. This, let's be absolutely clear, this is not a film. It is a soulless marketing exercise designed to pump money into the studios at the expense of a lot of the smarter, better films out there. And I don't have anything against blockbusters in general, but I do have a problem with studios who just make films this cynically and this emptily. And, no, shame on the people who made it, and if you go and see it, you're only going to make matters worse. Right. So, but there are... Well, you hated it as well. Yes. So don't, so don't play devil's advocate with me, young man. <laughs> I didn't say a thing. Okay, fine, sorry. So, there are actually quite a few good films to go see this week, though, aren't there? There are. It's, it's in terms, if you exclude the top one or the top two, uh, obviously go and see Thor, Attack the Block, Hannah, Water for Elephants and Win Win, a much more sort of niche appeal, but, you know, if you, if you're that way inclined, check those out as well. So, not a bad choice. Not a bad choice at all. No. Lionheart Radio. Right. I'll tell you a little story. Um, back right. back I, in the days when I was a Are kid, you sitting comfortably? Yes, indeed. I, I um, used to have ATV, it was the local commercial television station down there. On a Friday nights, they always had a horror film after the 10 o'clock news. And Peter Tomlinson, who was the Envision announcer in those days, would come on to announce the film. And he'd come in in his, uh, his pyjamas, clutching his teddy bear for comfort during the film, because he would be scared. <laughs> And I've got a feeling with the next film, I wish I'd brought my teddy bear in with me as well. Shall we play the trailer? I think we better. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. Totally charted. Just 
just an extract of the um of the trailer they did used to make trailers that went on and on and on in american cinemas didn't they well up to a point yes, yes. <laughs> anyway it's halloween and i have to say i was scared even watching the trailer <laughs> but when, you, when we were preparing for this you said when you saw it the first time around you weren't scared so make up your mind I, did i Yes. Or did I mishear you? I think you misheard. Right. Yes. You, you, not scared by a horror film. Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's Halloween. 1978 film by John Carpenter, originally titled The Babysitter Murders when it was being written. Um, we've covered John Carpenter's career in some depth when we looked at Dark Star. Um, I think it was about five or six weeks ago. Yes, something it like, was. Something yes. like that. So if you want yeah. sort of the background on him, go and look at that podcast. Suffice to say, he's a really good low-budget filmmaker, and when he's good, he's very, very good. Many people will know the title of this from the 2007 Rob Zombie remake starring Malcolm McDowell, but that compared to that, this is the real deal. This is the one that's genuinely scary, genuinely, no, substantial. Largely but incorrectly believed to be the first ever slasher film. I mean, it, depending upon which skill of thought you belong to, you can either say, well, that's psycho because, you know, it's Norman Bates running around with a knife, or you can point to Bob Clark's Black Christmas because, you know, that sort of sets the template in terms of, you know, there's someone in the house and picking off people who have a slightly younger disposition. But this is the first bona fide sexual slasher in the sense that it set the template for everything that, uh, that came afterwards in the late 70s and early yeah. 80s. And we'll sort of, we'll come on to the perceived legacy of Halloween in terms of the slasher genre and how that affects the film itself and a little bit yeah. uh, later on. Made for around $320,000 and it took about $60 million domestically, which means Incredible. It's, it's still, I think, one of the most financially successful independent films ever made. And it's... Something on this little film in front of me equivalent to $203 million in today's money. Yes. So, and it's... To make it hugely successful. Well, yeah, certainly on a budget of that. I mean, yes. that's, a, that's sort of into paranormal activity territory. So... The plot is, um, it's set in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois, and at the beginning of the film, which I think is set in 1963, getting the dates right from the trailer, uh, at the beginning of the film, we see an unknown figure walk into a house, take a kitchen knife out of a drawer, walk up the stairs, and stab a young girl to death. And uh, we come down, the camera then pans back, and it turns out, in the first really big shock of the film, that the murderer is a child by the name of Michael Myers, and the girl was his sister, and the deal is that she'd just finished having sex with her boyfriend, and he's killed her, well, presumably out of revenge, but that's sort of... The uh, the kind of sexual themes of the film are something that we'll yeah. again discuss later because it's a question of is it about sex or isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we then move to the present day of Halloween 1978 in which Michael Myers has escaped from a mental institution and is being pursued by Dr. Sam Loomis, played by the evergreen Donald Pleasance, who is something of a regular fixture in John Carpenter's films because he turns up in uh, Escape from New York, he plays the President of the United States, who gets um, machine guns sort of thrown at him by Isaac Hayes, yeah. and then he turns up as a mad priest in Prince of Darkness. Yeah, very believable performance. Yes, and there's that great, um, there's a great line of his in The Great Escape, he's take me with you, I can <laughs> see perfectly well. <laughs> <laughs> and of course he can't see a damn thing. So the film follows that, but in the meantime we have uh, a schoolgirl, Laurie Strode, who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis in her big screen debut, and her friends who are sort of around Halloween, the night that Mike Myers committed that murder, and the night that he's gonna come home. <gasps> you can stop holding me now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a teddy bear. So, 
The film is historically significant for um, several reasons. I mean, it does hark back to a time when it was, when the lifespan of a film was more than the opening weekend. I mean, it's ironic because Halloween, because of its low budget and because of you know, John Carpenter's reputation, it was sort of designed as a drive-in movie that would sort of play for two weeks and then... No, the print would end up somewhere, but a lot of yeah. driving movies did just get destroyed because they were sort of cheap and scuzzy and they needed the celluloid back. Um, but because word of mouth of this was so strong, because people went to see it at their local driver and said, you have to see this film, it's really scary, it hung around for something like four or five months, so long after Halloween, yeah. in some cases right through Christmas, Gosh. which sort of starts the whole kind of... And a happy Christmas to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, bear in mind, of course, Black Christmas was a big sort of December hit. It yeah. you know, sort of started the whole idea of... In contrast to the sort of very shiny, plasticky Christmas films like Jingle All the Way and that sort yeah. of thing, you have the sort of the edgy stuff. I mean, Gremlins as well sort Indeed. of carry that yes, on. So yes, no, there's a rich, there's a rich yes. vein of that. It has also a similar bridging role to Dark Star in the same way that Dark Star kind of took kind of has a bridge between the old-school sci-fi of, like, 2001 and the space fantasy of Star Wars, albeit an unintentional bridge, cause, you know, just because there are whole sections of Dark Star which George Lucas clearly ripped off. Halloween is like a bridge between the sort of the artier end of horror in the shape of Psycho and sort of Hitchcock's later efforts, because there's quite nasty stuff in Marnie as well, if you remember his, no, his 1964 yeah. film, and the slasher wave of the late 70s and 80s, so things like Friday the 13th, Prom Night, My Bloody Valentine, although, as will become clear, it's better than all of those. Um, I think the other elements are sort of its historical significance are best by examining the film in depth. Put it this way, if um, Psycho and Peeping Tom um, sort of took serial killing and made it an art form in the sense of showing how you can, uh, basically how you can make something as brutal as murder also look fascinatingly beautiful. And then you get something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which sort of brings the audience face to face with the concept of moral nihilism. And there's loads of stuff being written about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre being about the Vietnam War. And you know, you can believe as much of that as you like. Um, Halloween is sort of the film which sort of took, okay, we'll take this tradition and this tradition and bring them both literally screaming into the mainstream. Yeah. Um, it's special because of the fact that it has it such a ruthless and brutal simplicity. I mean, there are no sadistic or lingering deaths in the film. There's no confusing subplots. There's no unnecessary gore. And contrary to what most people believe, there is no gratuitous nudity. Now, there's very, I mean, there is one sequence in which um, one of my, my victims exposes her top half. But that's about as as nude as it gets, yeah. to be brutally honest. And you know, a lot of people kind of, they sort of read back into Halloween because they associate Halloween with just being like the other slashes, so they presume it'll be sort of upskirt shots and, yeah. you know, examination of people's chests, but it's not like that at all. And I want to make that absolutely clear. There's none of that... Just plain stuff. scary. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> terrifying in its own right, and it doesn't need any of that sort of glossy stuff. Well, it's not even glossy, it's just, it's, you no know, candy yeah. fly. And... The other thing that makes it so simple is that Mike Myers is a villain who doesn't need his motives explaining. I mean, if you look at something like the remake of Halloween, which put in all the stuff about, you know, the backstory of what Michael Myers did, and it's like, it's like the, in the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from about eight years ago, they actually did the sequence of Leatherface picking up a chainsaw when he was two years old, and you think, you do not need to do this, because the point is, it's no explanation. Yeah. Um, so, the fact that he is so singular and so unusual and so so mysterious makes him all the more terrifying. Because of the fact that the film was designed as a drive-in film, there are no, there's no sort of slack, there's no indulgences either from a financial point of view or creatively, but it is a demonstration of Carpenter's worth as a director that he could actually get beyond and around those limitations. Um, the film is famous for being one of the very first to use the newfangled Steadicam, which was called Panagli back in the day. I mean, people often associate that development with The Shining, but actually yeah. Carpenter did it first. Um, 
so what I know what that meant was that you could get you could mount a camera on someone's shoulder or on their body and you could actually move, run and jump without creating a juddering image, which you would get if you did a dolly shot or just actually yeah. holding it handheld. And that meant that you could actually get shots from the killer's POV. And as a result of that, you because your perspective is constantly shifting with that device, you create an atmosphere whereby even the hokiest elements, like, you know, escape mental patients and ignorant yeah. parents and a police force that says, oh, no, stop telling all these scary stories, just go home and go to bed. <laughs> it makes those home elements, which we've seen loads and loads of times before, yeah. it makes them deeply unsettling. It's like the yeah. thing in David Lynch films where when characters are smiling and reassuring, things are not going to get any worse <laughs> because you know that it's sort yes, of false. Yeah. So there is an undercurrent in the film about the notion of how being scared has sort of become institutionalized. There's a line in which Jamie Lee Curtis is comforting one of the kids and saying, it's all right, the bogeyman can only come out on Halloween night. And as long as I'm here, he's not going to come out. So it's the whole idea that because the, the festival of Halloween has become so widely observed and its practice is so commonplace, it no longer has an edge. You know, in the past when Halloween... Um, it was associated with being the night that evil spirits would yeah. come out and you know, prowl around and you know, it was the night to sort of stay in your homes and you know, jack-o'-lanterns were put yeah. in the window to keep people away. Now it's perceived as an evening where kids can have fun, adults can go out and everyone in between can just stay around and have sex. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the US, I mean it really is party time. It's, well yes, uh, I mean what I was going to say was that there is a sort of, you can sort of see hints of that in today's Halloween culture in which it is, you know, it is game in some quarters to dress up as, well, sluts, effectively. Yes. And no, whether you agree with that or not is entirely up to you, but I'm just saying that there is, there is a key through line in the sense that, you know, it's saying Halloween has become so institutionalized that people are no longer scared by witches and spiders and that sort of thing. But what Carpenter does in Halloween is he says, no, I'm going to put this right because there are still things out there that are scary and I'm going to prove that you can still be scared. I mean, the, the best example of this is there is a sequence where, the boy and the girl that Laurie Strode are babysitting, they're watching a telecast version of The Thing from Another World. It was a 1950s B-movie which John Carpenter would remake four years after this as The Thing, and we'll come yeah. on to that maybe in a couple of weeks. And um, they're kind of sort of dozing off saying, oh, I don't want to watch this, this isn't scary, and the boy's sort of looking out the window because he's bored, at which point Mike Myers appears at the window and he screams hysterically. <laughs> and it's the whole idea of... No, you think you can't be scared by something, yes. but it's just some, no, it, just yeah. because you're not scared by something that exists at the moment doesn't mean there aren't frightening <laughs> things out there and you will run for your life if yeah. there aren't circumstances. It is a film profoundly about the fear of the unknown. I mean, there's the opening sequence is really striking because we see horror but never the killer's face until the deed is done. Because of the way it's shot, there's actually a very odd moment, I don't know if you picked up on this the first time round. During the, the stabbing of the girl, the, the, he sort of looked, the camera, from the point of view of Michael Myers, looks over and watches his own hand moving the knife, which yeah. has sort of been read into by a lot of academics as saying, oh, that glorifies the violence because he's asking us to enjoy it, but it's actually, that's actually not true. Um, the thing about that shot, it was actually because they had so little sort of crew involved. The person actually holding the knife is not the actor, but it's the producer, Deborah Hill, just with a sort of kid's <laughs> glove on. And John Carpenter's the guy holding the camera and walking around on his knees to make it look like it's a child. Um, the film keeps shifting between this sort of first-person perspective where you're seeing the world from the point of view of Myers and you can sort of hear <sighs> that heavy breathing yeah. in the background and the sort of third-person perspective where you see sort of Jamie Lee Curtis in wide shots. And because it switches so often, you're never quite sure whether what you're watching is the killer's perspective or whether you're yeah. kind of seeing Because Michael Myers is only in shot for about, well, in total about two or three minutes in the film with, you know, because there's just like scenes of him like yeah. briefly in the garden and briefly hiding behind the head. So you create this sensation of 
who am I watching this with? Yeah. Which sort of really unsettles you. Then, of course, you get the unique soundtrack. I mean, John Carpenter you know, wrote a lot of the soundtracks to his films himself, and he wrote this in 5-4 time, which is really unusual. It's an unusual it's one, yes. Which sort of has, in his, the reason he liked it like that is because it had sort of no beginning or no yeah. end. There wasn't sort of a definitive climax. It's like the end of the score of Basic Instinct, where, you know, it cuts down towards the ice pick, and suddenly it's <laughs> in which you know, okay, it's yeah. going to go one way or the other. The character of Michael Myers is one of the great horror villains. I mean, it's played by Nick Castle, who I think only got $25 a day for wandering around in a boiler suit with a, with a, a mask, which is famously a very cheap William Shatner mask. <laughs> and obviously it sort of got deformed because yeah. they melted it and so forth. Known as the shape uh, by sort of horror circles and described in the trailer by Sam Luma as, as purely and simply evil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sort of sounds a bit cheesy now, but it, in the context of the film, it's quite yeah. terrifying. And the thing that makes Myers so interesting is that he appears to be sort of human in appearance and movement, but there is a supernatural quality to him in the fact that he sort of, he can appear sort of briefly in any sort of place and then the next time you look he's gone. And there is a sort of thing that he is this archetypal bogeyman as opposed to just a nutter who's got a knife running around, which would be the sort of braces for something like Friday the 13th. And the other thing that makes it interesting with Myers is that there is... There isn't any sadism because he, he doesn't derive any pleasure from his killings because you get the sense that he can't emote at all. Yeah. And that it, in the same way as with the rednecks in Deliverance, in the Squeal Like a Pig sequence, which is, again, you can look that up on the podcast, the idea behind that sequence is very much not this is good or this is bad, but this is the way it happens. This is the way it's always been. There isn't any attempt on the part of Carmen or anyone else to have a moral point. It's just saying... This is the way he works. And if you have a problem with that, well, I suggest you get out of the way before he kills you. <laughs> and so you do, in this, you have the sort of same response to Myers that you do with Sam Loomis, which is that you spend some time trying to, trying to understand him and, well, not cure him because Loomis yeah. is trying to do that. But then you actually can, actually, this guy just needs, we just need to protect ourselves yes. and yeah. run a damn mile away. Which brings us on to the sort of the morality of the film. And there has been, as a kind of show of how well the film is dated, there's been a lot of academic discussion about the film in the last sort of 20 or 30 years about whether it's a morality tale or whether it's actually sort of amoral and misogynist and all the others. And as, as I think will become clear, I'm sort of on the side of the former, but only in the sense that I don't think it's misogynist. Um, Halloween has its origins in something called The Tale of the Hook. Have you heard of The Tale of the Hook? No, I haven't. Okay, um, very sort of old uh, horror story where basically there's an escaped maniac on the loose um, and it's uh, a man and a woman sort of make, going out into a car and making out and then the girl hears a noise and she says, no, I'm quite scared, I don't want to you know, sit here kissing you anymore, can you drive me home? And the boy says, no, okay, and they drive home and as they're pulling up at his parents, they get out of the car and find a man's hook embedded in the door. Ooh. And it's the idea of a narrow escape. You know, yeah. if they'd hung around and you know, yeah. done the thing they're not supposed to do, they would have met a sticky end and sort of yeah. thing, you know. In, no, yeah, I think it speaks for itself. So there is a lot in... There's been a lot read into Halloween as sort of the, about the perils of having sex. And you can sort of understand that because all Myers films are... All Myers victims, sorry, are people who, you know, like I say, yeah. do, are doing what they shouldn't be. And there's the thing about Laurie Strode, the only person who manages to actually face up with him, actually is a virgin. Mm -hmm. But Carpenter has always downplayed this, saying, no, it's not about sex. It's about the sort of... It's about temptation in general and, rep and repression. I mean, the same way that vampire films aren't always about sex or lust. They can yeah. be about the underlying urges which produce those reactions. Um, 
Carpenter's film is very much about the idea that Laurie Strode doesn't survive because she's sort of virginally pure in the manner of sort of Dracula, that sort of thing. She survives because she's actually the most intelligent and resourceful of yeah. her classmates. She's the one who actually wants to study and she takes care of the children who she's entrusted with. So she's automatically better equipped to deal with Myers regardless of her sort of sexual status or preference. Then that brings us on to the debate about slashes sort of empowering or demeaning women. And you can certainly make an argument in the, the films that followed Halloween that they were sort of demeaning. I mean, you get things like um, Friday the 13th and My Bloody Valentine, which basically took the same sort of story of Halloween and just sort of saying, okay, let's bring an audience in by killing them in slightly unusual ways. So instead of yeah. a knife, let's have a pickaxe. Or instead of a knife, let's have uh, a power tool or a machete yeah. or something like that. And for a while... That was inventive enough to just about get away with it. But as the sort of 80s go on, you get them, in, them sort of being more sort of luring and reprehensible and actually focusing on, oh, yeah, let's kill them in really nasty ways. And eventually you end up with a film like The New York Ripper in which you have a serial killer stabbing prostitutes while doing duck impressions. And that's the point where you think, hang on a minute, we can't do this anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's a really reprehensible film. And so, But in the case of Halloween, like I said at the start, it's very little to do with sort of sex in terms of, you know, showing women being sort of pulchritudinous and stupid. And there is no real gore. I mean, there's no blood on screen. Yeah. It's just a really effective use of shadows and suggestionist music. And as with something like Alien, the film gives you so much and then your brain does the rest of the legwork so that you're actually, you're actually thinking while you're being scared. This brings us on to the ending, which... Many people have sort of criticised because of the way that it sort of le leaves room open for a sequel. You know how you get something like a modern Hollywood blockbuster in which the ending is deliberately inconclusive yeah. so that they've got yeah. a money for the next one. And it's often the case these days that if a film makes a certain amount before the opening weekend is over, the sequel will be immediately greenlit even if they haven't got a script, which is yeah. sort of an indictment of how Hollywood works. But I think all those criticisms are not quite intended, partly because, like I say, the film wasn't intended to stick around for well, 33 years, but also because Carpenter, I mean, if you, when they came to make Halloween 2, Carpenter was offered, like, something like six times more money, and he said, no, I'm not going to do it, because the story isn't good enough, and I don't want this to sort of become a monster in and of itself. The ending, as it stands, once you take it out of those criticisms, is really brilliant, because you have the sequence, you know, not to give too much away, but where Donald Pleasance comes in, shoots Michael Myers, who sort of tumbles out of the window in the one stunt that the film has. You see his body, then sort of Loomis looks over, and then Michael's is gone. Mm. And that's, yeah, I mean... Scary. Yes, and one of the interesting things about um, the production of that was Pleasance came to Carpenter on the day of the shoot, which I think was one of the last things they shot, and he said, um, John, I can play this one of two ways. I can either play it as, oh my God, he's gone, or I knew this would happen. Mm. And I think when you see the film, it's clear which one of the two it is. And then the film ends with a sort of montage of bits of the house of Laurie Strode with sort of heavy breathing. So you think, oh my God, he's still out there and yes. I could be next. And it yeah. just, like all great horror films, it leaves you with that one last great chill. So that even if the rest of the film has been quite forgettable, you still go out sort of feeling a bit shaken. And I think it's probably right, the sequel would have would have failed dismally, wouldn't it? Have you seen it? Halloween 2? No. No, I mean, there are things in it which are okay, but it's not Halloween. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the, the thing that Carpenter sort of really objected to about the sequel was that it introduced a subplot which sort of implied that, um, 
well, it sort of implied some kind of romantic connection between Myers and Laurie Strode. Not a consummated yeah. one, but it sort of, no, there was an undercurrent and he said, no, that would just spoil it. Um, but taken outside of the sequels and all the sort of derivative ones that came after it, it is one of the best horror films of the 1970s. It's still John Carpenter's best film, although, you no, know, The Thing, I think, comes very, very close. And I think, like I say, we'll do that in about two weeks. Great central performances. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is probably best known nowadays for stuff like A Fish Called Wander and Trading Places and so forth. But she was, a, she is a very good low-budget actress, and she's also very good in The Fog, which has her real-life mother, Janet Lee in a supporting role as well. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing to see alongside. None of the sequels have dented its reputation, and 30 years on from now, I think it'll still be scary, because it's just a really well-made, intelligent, terrifying piece of work. Yeah, and I think I'll go for Amoral as well there. <laughs> really? Don't you? No, I don't no. think it is. I think that there are, there are, in the case of subsequent slashes, there is a very much a trend towards, oh yes, violence is horrible, but let's look at it a bit more, and let's look yes. at it a bit more, and let's look at it a bit yeah. more. But Halloween, because you see so little of the actual deaths, mm. and because you know, Mike Myers is symbolic as a character, it that's, it's not that it gets away with it, but it's justified because it's about sort of it's about sort of preying on the stupid and preying on the innocent and preying on. Um, sort of, not just people who should know better, but sort of the old fear of the unknown. And Lloyd is the character who comes through because she learns to combat it. And it's nothing to do with saying, oh, she looks good in a pullover, let's yeah. try and kill her with a knife. Okay. Yes. Right. I still haven't convinced you by the way that you're sort of smiling <laughs> at me. <laughs> anyway, it was a very scary film. Yes, and still that. scary. Right, should we take a little break? I think we should. I think you'll come back. Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. Take that, and could it be magic? As I said earlier in the show, if you uh, went to take that last night at the Stadium of Light, send us a text. Tell us how it was. Millions of people going to see it. Well, not quite millions, but a million and a half people going to see Take That when they're on tour in the UK. You're Incredible. looking at me as if I have some kind of moral objection to Take That. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't. I actually, no. Yes. Uh, they're actually not bad in terms of their recent stuff. And actually, um, when I was driving in, you were playing uh, their track Rule the World, which yeah, has a special significance in me because it's over the end credits of Stardust, which is one of my favourite yeah. children's films. Excellent. Right. Next week we are doing... Savage Grace. Um, actually, it's unusual for a cult film because it only came out three years ago but it's a, a really unusual um, sort of real life story about um, Barbara Daly Bakerland who was one of the world's richest women who had uh, was slightly mentally disturbed shall we right. say and had an unusual relationship with her son but we'll come on to that next so week we shall look forward to that next week we've got uh, quite a few new releases to crack through starting with um What's Two Men and Monkey in Bangkok, isn't it? You want to start with The Hangover too? Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I saw a bit of that last night, so it's... Uh, oh, you saw the trailer of it? Yes. And was that enough to put you off? Um, it didn't look as bad as some of the sequels I've seen around. Did you see the first Hangover? No, I didn't. Right. Um, so it's the new film from Todd Phillips, uh, the sequel to his own film from 2009. In between, he made a film called Due Date with Robert... De with, I keep saying Robert De Niro, but it's Robert Downey Jr. Yes. Um, what, in a sort of take and give and take. So the story of the first film was essentially a bunch of guys go to Las Vegas, one of them's getting married, they wake up, they've had too much to drink, they can't remember anything and they have to retrace their steps and it's all sort of, you know, bawdy jokes about, you know, Mike Tyson having a tiger in his bathroom and that sort of thing and there's a real life cameo by him. This time, it's exactly the same story, the difference is it's in Thailand, specifically yeah. in Bangkok and... So, you no, know, they, they go to Bangkok because one of them's getting married. Uh, they wake up, they can't remember anything. The bride's brother has gone missing and they have to retrace their steps and bloody blah, blah, blah. So, first off, the first film wasn't funny. I mean, the first film was essentially a rip-off of Dude, Where's My Car, which was itself a rip-off of a very black comedy called Very Bad Things with Christian Slater in from the late 90s. I mean, that in itself, 
that's not a good film, but at least it had a very sort of spiky edge to it, which made it memorable. I mean, it's I, there's an opening sequence in it which involves accidental murder of uh, someone, which is, which again, it's not good, but it sort of it sticks in your mind. Whereas The Hangover was just a bit, pff, I don't care. This is it's kind of like it takes all the plot points of the first film and essentially reruns them in a way which is more vulgar, more nastier, more mean spirited, and unfortunately more racist because its depiction of all time people is either you're a transsexual or a drug dealer or somebody who should just be you know stupid and exploited and so so don't believe trailers sorry don't believe trailers well obviously the way that trailers are edited they'll put all the jokes in if they have to yeah but yeah it's it's just it's just hideous frankly Mon and the monkey steals the scene yes <laughs> and that says a lot yes indeed uh re-release of a fuck oh i never do this one up Apocalypse Now, <laughs> which is the film of the week, I should say. So, it seems odd that, you know, we're going to finish this program saying the film of the week is something from 1979. But if you have any chance at all in your life to catch Apocalypse Now on the big screen, do not miss it. It was a great film. It's, Absolutely great It's film. an extraordinary piece of work. I mean, for those who don't know, which would surprise me, considering how famous it is, a 1979 epic war film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who made the Godfather trilogy, um, based loosely on the novel Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And if you go to the Tyneside on June the 5th, I think it's one o'clock, they are doing a book club screening where they'll show the film and then discuss the novel afterwards. That should be fun. Um, so it's a, it's a loose adaptation of the novel, kind of complemented by this book called Dispatches by Michael Hare, who also wrote a lot of the dialogue yeah. for Full Metal Jacket. So the story is, you have Captain Willard, who's played by Martin Sheen, who is ordered to travel up the Nung River, this fictional Nung River, to find AWOL Colonel Kurtz, played by Marlon Brando, in his last great performance, who has sort of set up this weird kingdom somewhere in the Cambodian jungle. It is an extraordinary piece of filmmaking which sort of came about through a combination of great filmmaking and sheer luck because no, I don't know how much of the production story you know about Apocalypse. No, I don't. Uh... Okay, well, no. It began shooting in 1976, so three years before release. But soon after shooting, all manner of things went wrong. You had typhoons which destroyed the set. Harvard Hotel was fired about three weeks in and he threatened to sue for the whole budget of the production. Um, Martin Sheen had a massive heart attack and had to crawl about a quarter of a mile just to get medical attention. And Marlon Brando turned up famously having read neither the book nor the script over 300 pounds and completely bald when that was the opposite <laughs> of what Coppola wanted. And as a result of that, that's the reason why all of his shots in the film are, him, are in shadow. Because yeah. if they showed him sort of wandering around with a in each hand it wouldn't yeah. have been anywhere like a scary so after that after they'd been sort of shooting for the best part of a year and gone three times over budget it took about a year and a half to actually stick this mountain of footage together and edit it down to under three hours but you result in a really magnificent mesmerizing piece of filmmaking from a director who very much was in his prime i mean you think back to the Oscar ceremony of 1974 when you had The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, and Chinatown all going up for Best Picture. And yeah. two of those films were directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Incredible. So yes. yeah, he was, yes. he was in his prime and, and in many ways this is the film from which his career never recovered because after that he did get a reputation for, for being sort of profligate with money and being overblown. Yeah. And certainly if you've seen his version of Dracula, that's quite clear because it's very long and completely mad. Um, but the, th but it's his sort of directorial vision in the midst of all this madness that holds the film together. You've got great cinematography by Vittorio Storaro, really sort of profound film about sort of the madness of war and its impact on individuals about religion and politics and humanity and napalm, let's face it, there's a great <laughs> performance by Robert Duvall which I think is still voted one of the greatest lines in cinema history and deservedly so. I mean, some of its legacy is tainted by its sort of 
in terms of the impact it had on Hollywood because it's its reputation for being sort of wasteful and inefficient did sort of start the new Hollywood movement going into decline and eventually you get Heaven's Gate the year yeah. afterwards which sort of was t attempting to be gone with the wind and Apocalypse Now but without the talent of either and ended up just being four hours of terrible filmmaking. But Apocalypse Now on the big screen is is truly hypnotic and if you're in the right frame of mind you will come out completely amazed. Yeah. Brilliant film, impossible title to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> no, never mind. Let's go on to the next sequel, Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2, Roderick Rules. Yep, which is the sequel to Diary of a Wimpy Kid, which was one of last year's sort of sleeper hits in America, uh, directed by David Bowers, who previously made um, Astro Boy and Flushed Away, the sort of the odd man digimation, which didn't, which wasn't quite as good as their hand-drawn or claymation efforts. Um, continues the story of the first film in that you have a young kid called Greg, who is the wimp of the title and sort of writes the film from his point of view. He's trying to fit in at school but failing miserably. This film is in, he's in the next straight up and he's sort of turning to his older brother Roderick who's in a rubbish sort of punk band to show him the way despite the fact that he hates being in his brother's shadow. We're obviously not the target audience for this. No, uh, I guess we're not. No, and based upon my experience of the trailer, I can imagine you sort of hating it because it is that sort of, it's sort of kid-friendly slapstick. It looks a bit like the Farrelly brothers, but obviously not the yeah. Farrelly brothers because they're much more sort of gross out. It's nothing to write home about, but it's also nothing to get upset about because it is a kids' film made by people who understand kids' movies, and so if you've got young children, they'll probably enjoy it. And we're not the target audience. No, I mean because we don't have children. Yes, but no doubt, Louis Denny will we. I dare say that he's very excited about it on Monday when he's here. Yes. Yes, indeed. We shall hold him to that. <laughs> right. Well, if you're listening, go and see it and tell us what you think. Right. Next one, Heartbeats. Which is a Canadian art film and the directorial debut by, uh, it's either Xavier or Javier, depending on whether he's English-Canadian or French-Canadian, uh, Javier Nolan, um, follows, according to the plot synopsis, an obsessive menage a trois, uh, one of whom is played by Nolan. The twist is that instead of being a sort of two men fighting over a woman in the manner of you know, Bridget Do yeah. Jones and so forth, it's actually a man and a woman fighting over a man. And, you know, the man sort of is implied <laughs> whether or not he's bisexual, and there's, yeah. you know, there's an explanation of that. Um, the film won a prize at the Sydney Film Festival last year, and it was in the what's known as Uncertain Regard at Cannes, which is the sort of next level down from the Palm yeah. Bowl. You have the series of films which are submitted for the big prize, and then Uncertain Regard means we don't think these are quite good enough, but have a look anyway. Yeah. And it sort of got, it didn't win the prize in that, but it got a, it's sort of got a fair amount of recognition. It's an interesting premise, and it's visually stylish. It does, in places, look like, do you remember those sketches on the Fast show of um, the characters parodying those French art films where it's all in black oh, and yes, white? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Does anyone in the fancy a pant? It does look a bit like that in yeah. places. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's probably, in the long run, it'll be a sort of calling card for its director rather than anything else. But it's okay. Okay. And the final one we got this week is The Four Times. Yes, or Le Quattro Volte, to give it its um, original language title. Um, Italian near-silent film and the debut feature from Michelangelo Framantino. Um, it's very unusual because in his director's statement, which is the sort of the, the gubbins you get with the press note saying yeah. why I made the film and how I made the film, um, he says that he set out to make a film which departed from what he perceived as a human monopoly on drama. In other words, why do we always have to make films in which people are sort of in control and take the lead so forth. He wanted to make a film in which we kind of look at the landscape a lot more. And so it's a film which has a sort of series of characters in a village community, but you spend most of the time kind of watching trees and sort of uh, sheep wandering away from the herd and that sort of thing. Now, there is a precedent for making sort of dramas or sort of quasi-documentaries which have the landscape every bit as much a character as the others. I mean, most obviously things like Michelangelo Antonioni, particularly The Passenger, in which 
do you have these sort of arid desert plains and these mountain roads which sort of give a sense of fatalistic dread that then rubs off on the Jack Nicholson character yeah. who's sort of trying to escape from himself because he, if you remember the passenger, he takes on the identity of a dead man and then the police get on his trail. The closer comparison, however, is with the work of Terence Malick. I don't know if you're familiar with Terence Malick at all. Um, Badlands, Days of Heaven. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, the Most comparison, there's a film he made in the 90s called The Thin Red Line, yeah. which is about the Pacific end of World War II. And the interesting thing about that film was that it, it's, its thesis was, while war, wage, while war wages, nature happens anyway. So you'd get these kind of shots of people, you know, firing at each other over these kind of trench warfare in the middle of a jungle, and then it would cut to sort of snails going about their business and sort of cows wandering along in fields. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, humans are not necessarily in control of the stuff just because <laughs> we're fighting each yeah, other. Yeah, right. As with the work of Terence Malick, however, there comes a point where gazing fondly at nature isn't quite enough to make it dramatically interesting. I mean, I think if you're a fan of Terence Malick, whose new film, The Tree of Life, actually just won the Palm d'Or and is coming out, I think, in two weeks' time, but maybe next week. Yeah. If you like Malick's style and his way of sort of looking at ordinary nature and finding something which is dramatic, then I think you'll like La Quattro Volte. But for anyone else, it's going to be a bit dull, I'm afraid. Right. So a bit of a mixed bunch this week, then. Apocalypse Now are definite. Apocalypse Now is definitely the film of the week. Like I said, the Times Show is showing it at uh, 1 o'clock on June the 5th, so that's the nearest you're going to get to see it without travelling. If you, for some strange reason, don't want to see that, I suppose the other recommendation is uh, Heartbeat. But you might have to travel again for that. Yeah. But then there are lots of other good ones in the top ten at the moment. Yeah. Shall we just go through those again, yeah. if you'd like? Um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, Thor, Attack the Block, Hannah, Water for Elephants, and Win Win. But the last two are sort of much more niche taste. Right. And don't go and see Pirates of the Caribbean or The Hangover. Yeah. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> right. Thanks very much, Daniel. You'll be back next Saturday, ten o'clock. Yep. Yeah, same time. Are you here next Thursday? Yeah. By all means. Right. Good. Well, it's uh, nice to see you, and thanks very much to Good Mick. to see you too, Richard. Thanks very much to Mick for uh, emailing in. He said he voted for Daniel. Oh, thank you, Mick. S was something happening recently? Yes, um, <laughs> a strange thing involving votes, which yes. we can't talk about still. Yes. <laughs> so, after the scary version of Halloween, shall we have the slightly less scary to go out? <laughs> Why not? Yes. It's Bobby Boris Pickett's. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.